You're listening to 2.23am with Dr. Christine McDougall. Are you ready for a new kind of success and fulfillment? End the silent struggle. Join us as Dr. Christine McDougall speaks to successful, high-achieving men as they share their journey towards a more fulfilling and sustainable life and business and discover the better alternative. It's 2.23am and the life of your future is calling. Richard Hames is considered to be among the world's most influential intellectuals and foresight practitioners. An Australian citizen educated in Europe and domicile in Thailand, Richard has been honoured with numerous awards, including a French government scholarship, a Leverholm European Fellowship, the Mondarori Professional Fellowship, not sure if I got that right, and the inaugural Lord Attlee Fellowship. Richard is Executive Chairman of the Centre for the Future, Director of Hames McGregor Plus Partners, and Chairman of the Asian Foresight Institute. He is also an elected fellow of the World Academy of Arts and Science. Richard is a member of various advisory boards and has been a personal mentor to presidents, heads of state, and some of the world's most innovative CEOs. A compelling public speaker, Richard is the author of seven books, the latest being Heresies, Essays on the Future of Humanity. He is father to 10 children and has 14 grandchildren. Richard is also a friend of mine, and uh, I think you will be able to pick that up during the conversation. In this episode, we discuss fatherhood the second time round, losing his own father at the age of seven, and the cost of that for Richard power and its various manifestations, that if we do not handle vulnerability, we become fragile, less resilient, the need for a pluriversal education system, and much more. The conversation is both laugh out loud and deeply emotive, offering wisdom from years of commitment towards a better world. Please enjoy this episode with the wonderful Richard Haynes. Richard, very Christine, good, very good to have you on the call. It's nice to talk to you. Thank you. So uh, during this series, I am speaking uh, to uh, actually a very diverse range of men. And so, you know, the wonderful part of this conversation is we'll be able to explore um, some of the topics that I've explored in previous conversations, but also uh, a, as a father of grown-ups and as a father of a young child and the different experience that you might have had with that um, <laughs> compared to back in the days. <laughs> so yeah. we'll be able to get there. But let's... Very different, let me tell you, a very different experience. Yeah. After a gap, I think it was a gap of 17 years, so uh, things have changed. Yeah, wow. Um, so um, we'll circle back to that. But um, so, so my sort of opening question, which is a really broad question, is uh, f from your experience, what is it like to be a man in today's world? Okay, so I mean, uh, for a start, it's, it, that's not a simple question because <laughs> it's, it, it's multi-layered and extremely complex and a lot dis depends on, in terms of my feelings of what it's like to be a man, uh, in different stages of my life, and it's been different. Uh, the, that context is so important, and the different levels of complexity that, and the, the nuances and the shades of things which um, which impact. So I, I need to step back a bit because the the realization I think that I was actually male was occurred to me when I was seven years old when I lost my father and I was brought up by my mother who was incredibly supportive uh, vehemently uh, so very protective of me uh, but I was in a situation where in in the UK where I was in the public school system and and being bullied constantly because I was a scholar, I was uh, not like the others. I was from a poor family, and uh, you know, so I ex that kind of experience I think shaped a lot of what 
I feel today um, as a man. And, and one of the difficulties I have is this constant uh, division of men and women into uh, the, the separation, the partition that occurs whenever a conversation of this nature um, is started. And what, going back to that seven-year-old, prior to my, my father, uh, losing my father, I had only thought of people. It didn't matter whether they were girls or boys, men or women, black or white. It didn't matter what it was. What hit me at that age was there are differences and these differences seem to matter to other people. Mm. And so I think I've spent my whole life trying to work out why those differences matter and what are more significant differences than others and also why, more philosophically, why it should matter at a time in, on the planet when there are so many existential emergencies that keeping those distinctions and those separations apart, especially when it comes to dialogue, is to me self-defeating. When we should be talking about the stages of development of humanity and what we have in common and how we need to work together more effectively. So for me, it's a slightly different angle, I suppose, because I don't feel macho at all. I've got a, I'm told I've got a very strong feminine side. What on earth does that mean? It means <laughs> I think it means that I'm a whole person. And one of the problems, I think, with the pressures on men and possibly exacerbated since the feminist, the original feminist movement of the 60s and 70s. I think the pressures on men today have changed and are resulting in some of the problems we have in society, like increased suicide rates and, and uh, uh, resorting to um, drugs or whatever it happens to be. I think the pressure on men is not... Uh, insignificant, just as the pressure on women clearly uh, is not insignificant. Yeah, it, it, I mean, I'm not, and and at no point am I trying to make this an easy, it's a, a superficial kind of easy conversation, and and that's why I, I really, um, I really appreciate both the nuance that I know that you'll bring to this, but also um, the diversity of the the commentary from different people and different experiences. Uh, it, and and yet at the at the same time, it's very hard to escape the the uh, the reality. And you pointed to some of that, which is the increasing suicide rates, particularly in young men. Um, and but then also the the um, increasing awareness uh, of of. Um, that where power exists in our in our current world uh, yes. and, and unfortunately <laughs> I think most of us will agree that the the power that is shaping humanity right now is not a feminine voice no and it should be well it should be more balanced than it is clearly but the, again let's let's be a little more granular uh, my going back to my personal experience when I've been working in a hierarchical organization and there have been occasions where in that context I've my boss has been a woman and I've had women reporting to me um, and I've found that extremely difficult going both ways I found it difficult working with uh, the boss uh, being a woman not because of gender particularly, but because of the distinctive way in which many women work as a result of how they think. I mean, the brain chemistry is different. And, and equally, I had problems with the, with the women reporting to me because very often their expectations around the conversation would silence me. Um, and I felt in both situations, very ineffective. In a different context, and perhaps more recently, where you get more networked collaborative enterprises, and there's no 
hierarchy imposing the power structure in a way which is uh, negative, then it's easy. It's very easy for men and women to work together as long as that, culturally speaking, is something that is constantly uh, fostered and attention is paid to. Mm. So, so, so um, there's a, there is a significant part of this that um, uh, has um, something to do with power. <laughs> um, I, I heard a I heard a definition of power recently, which was um, who gets to move what, and also um, skills and resources over needs and wants as a measure of power. Mm. Um, but we ha- we have uh, we have I. I Created a, a, I believe, a culturally distorted view of of um, of who gets to move what. <laughs> yes, yes. And, and unfortunately, um, women, uh, I, and I've come across this myself. Women in power power roles can adopt the the domination um, power role equally as capably as as um, men can. It's not, you know, that's not an exclusive club. No, not at all. And but it's the manipulation of power that uh, is the evil. So say more about that. Well, I, I think having power is uh, very often it's an illusion. Positional power is one thing, but the power of an individual to persuade and influence and inspire uh, all of those things that we believe leadership can and should be. Um, is power exercised in a very benign or uh, beneficial way, whereas a lot of the power we see being exercised, because it's constantly fed by the media machine, especially the corporate media, is quite obviously a manipulative behaviour, which is, I mean, I, I, I don't believe it could be condoned on any measure at all. But nevertheless, when we see that, that's where power goes astray. That's where it's not, that's where it becomes toxic. Right, yeah. And so, so can, you, can you say, if we go back to um, the, the pivotal experience when you were seven years old and you suddenly had this awakening um, that I imagine must have been quite traumatic at the same time, losing your father, uh, um, how, how you, how that shaped your relationship, obviously then being raised by a mother, a single mother, um, how that shaped your relationship as a man, um, um, in the world? Um, well, again, you've got to take the whole context into account and because I was part of the English public school system, I was bullied unmercifully and I developed a fear of my peers or some of my peers, uh, which I guess has even stayed in the background today. See, Christine, I, I firmly believe that we all kind of have this very complicated mixture of emotions. I mean, I often have to pinch myself when I'm advising um, a, a, a a corporation or a, a minister of the crown or, you know, whoever it is, I have to pinch myself to think, you know, is this really me giving advice to this person who is able to wield so much power, is so wealthy or is so influential? And I've always had that kind of reticence, not actually believing in me. Mm-hmm. There, there are, I mean, there are many doubts which... In, in some ways a relief because psychiatrists tell you that the more doubts you have, the smarter you are, whereas those people that have no doubts at all are very stupid. Um, <laughs> in some senses, that's a relief. But this whole cauldron of emotions that I began to harbour from that age um, made me feel alien, um, uh, outside of every group, almost every group, even the, the, the you know, close-knit group of friends. I've, uh, even today, I feel somehow that I don't fit in to that group. And there's, there's also, um, because I'm a man, probably along with that, 
uh, a hubris or an arrogance and a temptation to think that, well, if that is the case, then I, I should, I, I don't look down on other people, but I, I, I tend to give myself the credit for being smarter than them, which is not good. I mean, I, at least I'm aware of it. Mm -hmm. I, this, um, but this experience of being alien outside, not fitting in, I, I, I actually personally think that's a very common experience for, for mm, many so people. I, it's probably a common unvoiced experience. Um, that uh, part of a part of a conversation that I think it's time for us to have as humans. Um, uh, in other words, you know, I could quite imagine that we've got a world of people, not just men, men and women, walking around who feel alien and outside. Oh, look, I think that's very common. I, I really do. Uh, and I'll tell you a story. When I was uh, one of the things that shocked me as a mentor very early on in the days when I was mentoring really um, uh, influential people who were in the press every day, uh, this one guy who was a CEO and who was, he was a kind of reluctant client in a way because uh, I'd been recommended by his head of HR who clearly uh, thought that he needed some help, but wasn't quite sure what that help was. And so I was introduced to this guy and uh, we, we had a retreat and I work two day, initially two days intensively, uh, as you'd be aware, pe peeling back the onion layers, you know, get, yes. trying to get to the person. Uh, but within one to two hours of our first conversation, this tough, macho, guy, very successful uh, in terms of his career, in the papers every day, was in tears. And not just in tears, he was sobbing violently. And when he was able to speak, he was saying, surely there is more to life than this. There has to be more to life than me doing what I have to do with all the pressures that I'm under. And you know, I never have thought in my wildest dreams that this tough, macho guy who was taught tough was as vulnerable and as fragile as me. Well, there's two parts to that. Uh, first of all, that you said as you, um, which I'm not going to step over. Um, um, but um, I, I, this is, I, it's a very common experience. And, and this is part of the sort of impulse behind uh, this podcast series right now is that there is this grand illusion of uh, th that is even made worse by the social media perfectionism of our lives, our glossy lives that we like to post on social media. Um, that that we've all got ourselves together, and uh, <laughs> and this is how we present to the world. When I think almost all the time, most most days, some days we make it through, and other days it's like, geez, I just made it through without anyone seeing that I'm just making it through. Yes, yes, that's right, <laughs> absolutely. But you see, in the in the, in in that frame of reference too, I think part of the problem that the media actually creates, and I don't mind whether you're talking about uh, social media or, or corporate media or any form of media, but the the level of thinking is so banal and so immature and puerile that we want to apportion blame all the time. Let's, let's find the scapegoat. Let's blame men. Let's blame this. Let's blame yeah. that. That doesn't help at all. Yeah. 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 And so, so I'm just, it's, you were bullied terribly, and this is something that um, hasn't, uh, hasn't gone away in today's society. <laughs> um, uh, what was your best uh, defence um, in, in, in those bullying situations? What were, how, how did you cope with that? What was the coping mechanism? So the coping mechanism initially, this is from the age of eight, the coping mechanism was to avoid yeah. So I would avoid walking down the street if I saw the bullies on the street, if I could. Or if I couldn't avoid that, I'd walk on the other side of the road and try and slink past, you know, unobtrusively. I can't imagine you slinking, but that's okay. <laughs> I'll give it a shot. <laughs> yes. Well, luckily, I, I could run fast. So I, 
could very often outrun them if they chased me. But eventually, when I was 12 and at public school, and I was being bullied, and I don't know what it was inside me, but something snapped. And I, it, it, I didn't think about it at all. But I just leapt at this person, biting, scratching, screaming at the top of my voice, hitting, punching. And I was never bullied again after that. Right. right. Yeah. I mean, I was really wild. It was like a wild animal. Yeah. But, you know, but the bullying since then has been, when it's occurred as an adult, it's been more, uh, as I would say, use the term nuanced. It's it's more verbal. It's more snide yes. comments and things like that. You know. Yes, yes. I I, I think this topic um, of um, bullying, which is definitely not going away very fast, uh, we we often spend so much time addressing the bully and and neglecting to uh, um, take away the victim. In other words, and that's not by avoiding, but that's actually uh, by creating enough um, resources and skill sets within the person that is being victimised to no longer be victimised. Mm -hmm. um, it's not always easy and it's not always possible, but I think we should be focusing on both sides of that equation. Well, also, I mean, just recently uh, we've had a spot of bother with my youngest son, who's just seven. Uh, being bullied and it's been going on for months and months and months and the the uh, the father of the bully is just uh, telling us that we should accept this is just rough play there's no malice uh, there and we need to teach our son to fight back but that's not the kind of society I want mm -hmm. yeah uh, it's pretty tough when um, we're, we're trying to create um, humans that haven't been damaged as children <laughs> to, to, uh, to um, uh, um, and, the, and the father is not really interested in engaging in a conversation that might include his son um, for whatever reason inflicting damage on another child. No, well, denial is easy. Denial in all in all uh, aspects of life today. I mean, if we if we deny, then it's it's easy. Yeah. So so um, what how, what is your relationship now? Or how how have you how have you sort of matured to this stage with your relationship to power in your own life? Well, uh, there are two ways, I guess, because. I've come up against power as a mentor. Mm -hmm. uh, and a lot of the people I've mentored around the world have been real heavyweights, but men and women. And so in dealing with that, I've, if there's been any attempt on the part of that person to manipulate their power in our relationship or to draw on that power in ways that I thought... Um, uh, inadvisable uh, then I would simply bring my intellect to bear and and intimidate back in ways that were not physical and not teasing and not meant to undermine but were challenging to try and get that person to think differently about the uh, the tension they'd just uh, set up mm -hmm. then when it comes to me wielding power um, and because I've been in that situation where I've started organizations, I've run businesses and, uh, and still do and, and, and deal with, um, you know, the, the, uh, the teachers at my son's school, for example, where there's a level of authority I can command, which is tacit. It's not explicit. It's simply tacit in the way I go about having the conversation with people. Then for me, the use of power is one that allows uh, others to feel good and inspired and, and it, it benefits their development. So... I quite deliberately use power in that way to effect good. It, it is a practice, though, isn't it? Oh. Because um, <laughs> um, our, uh, it, it's, uh, 
um, it's one of the one of the things that can sneak up on us um, as we sort of as we even in in just becoming a, a, a an elder so to speak a wise elder that that and you mentioned hubris earlier that that we can have a, a level of um, you know, I've been there, done that. I know what I'm doing. Yes, yes. <laughs> and, and, and that in its own way is a subtle, a subtle um, power over the, the ignorant or the, uh, the person that hasn't had that same set of experiences. And yes, it is. Yes, it is. And yes, it is a practice. You have to be, you, you have to practice all the time. And what, there's an obvious thing, like one of the, things that I personally can't stand, it doesn't matter whether it's coming from a man or a woman, is shouting. Uh, I, I find that very confronting and very unnecessary and not at all intelligent. And in situations like that, again, depending on what, how, how the thing is evolving, I will remain silent I, or I will deflect it. Or I will push back in a way which is non-confrontational. Yeah, but all of that is practice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and there are sometimes where um, it is the place that we might have to go as the last place, like you did as a twelve-year-old with the with the bully, um, and because there was no other way of penetrating um, a behaviour than a, a really disruptive behaviour that was not expected. Yes, I mean that. I, for me, that's been fortunately very rare. Yeah. Um, but it's. I, I would imagine. Yes. It. It. You. You have to keep it. I think as a. As a tool in your repertoire, uh, because. Sometimes. Yeah. Sometimes it's just necessary. It's. It's a. It's sad to think that that is the case. Yeah. Because I think um, the evolution. It's tied to the evolution of humanity and I you know, as you know I believe that we've reached a kind of gridlock where none of the existential problems that humanity faces can be solved simply because of the developmental level we're at we need a momentous leap of consciousness mm, to yeah. deal with all of these things differently and I don't see it happening yeah it's interesting because as you say that I think about your experience as a 12 year old and and uh, and and so um, sometimes it, it's the the left of field. It's the it's the uh, the story I once heard um, from a client whose mother was the church mouse for her entire life, and then just one day she snapped. She didn't snap with shouting. She snapped when she dropped the meal that she had prepared for her husband in his lap, <laughs> <laughs> and that was a revolution. That was yes. like it was a revolution. It, the, the whole family at the dinner table were completely and absolutely gobsmacked. That there well, yes, it's that, that kind of calibration. The yeah. smallest, the smallest movement can be revolutionary, can't it? Yeah, and so you know, I think I, I think of I think of your twelve-year-old act of spitting and screaming and shouting, <laughs> and there is many variations of that. But it's it including dropping a plate without saying a word. But it's that it's that uh, it's a completely unexpected response um, to something um, that often emerges out of sheer frustration and uh, um, can, of course, include violence, um, which I'm not recommending. No. Um, and if it doesn't occur spontaneously, then you could put it, you could classify it as uh, manipulative. Correct. Yes, uh, absolutely. So, you know, so, yeah, you have to be careful. Yeah, absolutely. So you, you, let's go back to, um, you, you are a father of quite a few children. <laughs> no, only 10. <laughs> only 10. <laughs> well, nine biological and one inherited daughter. Okay. So... And, and 14 grandchildren at the, the last count. Right. Uh, so um, still quite a few children. Um, and, but but uh, your son that you mentioned earlier is uh, it's a 17-year break. So t talk to him about, talk to me about um, fatherhood the first time round and fatherhood the second time round. Uh, fatherhood the first time round was amazing to start off with. But then as I got busier professionally, I think I was a lousy father. I didn't spend as much time 
as I should have done with my children. And I didn't do the normal things with them. You, you could say, well, they were all doing music. So all the first batch, they were all musicians. And in fact, the oldest, my oldest son is today principal viola in the Munich Radio Orchestra, as you know. But um, I didn't kick a football around. And the only time I did anything kind of macho was to buy Ben a fishing rod. Uh, and I couldn't use a fishing rod because I couldn't kill a fish. But I was going to demonstrate how to use the fishing rod. And we were on a cliff and I said, look, Ben, it, it's like this is this is how you use it. And I threw the rod into the sea accidentally. The whole thing disappeared into the waters. <laughs> so, so I was immensely unsuccessful as a father. Now, my first batch of kids will tell me today how much they love me. And that was not the case. I was the best father in the world, etc. You know what kids say. But I can't help feeling guilty that I should have spent more time with them. So it, so it was fairly tense as well. And they, because of the relationship I had with my first wife, that, that where we didn't really see eye to eye a lot of the time, and our kids were homeschooled. Um, so there were tensions um, there. Um, that was all pretty difficult. Now, the second time round is, is really much easier because there's only one not a whole clutch of them, yeah. all flying for attention. Uh, and he's he has Asperger's, which coincidentally, uh, when he was about two or three, I, I was I was admiring him. I don't know what he was doing now, but I said to all the people, he's so much like I was as a kid, mm-hmm. and, and suddenly realised, oh, hang on a moment, I must have Asperger's, right. and. It, you know, basically, I went and then uh, to my GP, and he said, "Didn't you know? <laughs> <laughs> you really that ignorant, that stupid?" And uh, so that that was interesting. But the, the, the relationship I have with him is like nothing. It's much that I had with my previous batch. It's it's closer in a way that is more relaxed. It's it's yeah, it's much more easygoing and. I don't know. It's just easier the second time round, Christine. <laughs> right. And so how, because the, part of the conversation that I'm having at the moment is, um, and you sort of mentioned it earlier, the pressure on men today. Um, and there's been pressure on men forever. It's, it, and this is not weighted one to one's um, gender or another. Um, but but um, I, 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 st- I think the heritage the heritage sort of pressure is still carrying through, um, which is um, the, provesh, pr- the pressure to, provi- to be the provider. You mentioned a couple of times to be the man, the macho, um, it, to kick a ball around or go fishing or whatever it is that is the, in parenthesis, the, the expectation of, of um, being the father. But it's yeah. this providing thing as well, which... Yeah, that, that, that's very, very true. And it pervades into being a grandfather as well. I mean, I was um, comparing notes with a very dear friend of mine from school. We've known each other over 50 years. And I said, look, I, sometimes I feel very guilty because I don't feel like a grandfather is supposed to feel about his grandchildren. You know, I can I can put up with them for an hour and then I'm quite happy to say goodbye, go back and disappear <laughs> and grandfathers are not supposed to feel like that are they well, well, which and, role book are you reading from <laughs> no, no, it's it's all this tacit kind of floating in the air information yeah. it's like the stuff that was rammed into me at school around etiquette and manners and you know there's a proper way of doing things and this differs from culture to culture of course yeah. But, you know, it's it's very impactful. But if you really want to get to, you know, a, I'm going to say something fairly provocative, I suppose. I think the biggest uh, event, let's call it an event, a big, the biggest happening that has ramped up the pressure on men's identity and role was that initial feminist movement, which I think was very necessary for women and the the liberation of women it did some marvelous things for women but i think 
it went too far for men and it resulted in many men, including myself, not really being sure anymore about my role in society and towards my family and, you know, the, the whole role thing, the, the identity and role. I, I don't think that's provocative at all. I completely agree with you. And, and it's why, uh, for some strange reason, my life, I have both worked with men, but also felt a deep level of compassion uh, because from my perspective, I've seen this huge investment in the women's sort of... Um, the women's movement, I'm not going to say liberation, but the women's, the women's sort of emergent um, role of women as, as equals and et cetera, et cetera. I've seen a huge progression there, but it's almost like the, the ground under the feet of what it is to be a man has been pulled and no one was having that conversation. No, and the, it left in its wake uh, a tide of sadness, d deep sadness and confusion uh, I think for th 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 men as a, a class, as a as a yeah, as a group, and, and I don't think helped at all by the mothers of today, which still still seem to be raising their sons to a large degree with the same patterns, and that's what I, I get very annoyed with some mothers because it's like you, it, how how are you expecting? To, to, to create a, a really strong pathway for your son to negotiate this new world of, of, um, of male-female relationships if uh, you're, you're teaching him to be the same as um, his father and his grandfather. Uh, yeah, but, yeah. You, you know, there are so many complications there as well because, uh, I, I mean, I'm always in awe of mothering. I, I just find it amazing that any person can be a mother and do other things as well. It's so overwhelmingly uh, important and it is, it's just overwhelming to, to need to mother. And the, the, the literature at various times, whether you're talking talking about uh, the LeMay's method or whatever it is, not just giving birth, but how you bring up your your kids, that the literature changes all the time on you. So the, that, you know, that confuses people. It confuses mothers. I mean, there's, there's no kind of definite yardstick for this. So I, I can... I can empathize totally with mothers that bring their children up a certain way um, because th for me, there is no right or wrong. It just is how we're inducted into a kind of uh, mechanism that makes sense for us at the time. Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, I, I guess it, the, the, the real conversation that um, is both one for, for the education and also for the parenting is, is how do we, we raise children that are, uh, have resilience and agility and um, a strong sense of who they are in their identity, no matter what uh, gender they are um, and the variations of gender that they are, that there's, that that's probably the best. In other words, recognising really clearly that they're sovereign human beings and, uh, and our role isn't to shape them in our identity, um, but rather have them become who they are. Well, absolutely. And and so you have to look at the institutions that we've constructed that keep the former model in its place. So the, the educational system, for example, it needs to be bombed. It needs, to, <laughs> you know, we, we need a totally different uh, kind of system or pluriversal system, not a universal system for, for educating people. What's a what's a pluriversal system? Exactly. Oh, many universes, many yeah, worlds. Many, many. Okay, there's plural. No, okay, got it. Answer, you know, there's yeah. no, and and we seem to, I, I all these arguments that come from government about regulating schools and and having a national curriculum, it's all bullshit. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yes, and and complicated because <laughs> a plurisystem, <laughs> a multi-universal system, is is. Uh, 
That's tricky. That's 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 uh, but, you not know, the, impossible. Tricky. The, the schooling system, although you find a great many women teaching, of course, the system itself is a patriarchal system. I mean, it's just an autocratic, uh, hierarchical load of nonsense. Yeah. 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 So, so just changing track a little bit, we talk, mm. we've talked about power. Um, mm. What does it mean for you to be strong? Oh, that's a lovely question. And it's, that's very interesting because it's come up in my relationship. Uh, well, relationships generally. Uh, for me to be strong, it means being steadfast and um, being trustworthy and having an authenticity and integrity about me that is unswerving um, and resilient. Now, that's, that's interesting because uh, in my relationship, for example, my wife is Thai, as you know, and strength in that culture has very often resulted in uh, family violence, uh, particularly where a husband can beat his wife for any reason whatsoever, because he owns her. So, I, so I've come, a, come up against this when my wife has shouted at me for not being strong or showing leadership, where in my mind, I have shown it absolutely. And my strength has been uh, not to hit out, not to shout back but to remain calm and to make sure that her concerns are heard and dealt with, but in a way which is, is calm. Mm. You raise a, it's a very interesting um, point that you've raised there that the cultural difference that, uh, and, and even that we, we need to engage in a conversation around what it is to be strong uh, in our relationship with each other. As, as something because, as you just so clearly pointed out, um, your wife's expectation of strength and yours are, are, are like light years distant. <laughs> yes, but you see that in terms of the iceberg, if you go one level lower than strength, I think what you get to is love. And it's not, I'm not talking uh, sexual love, I'm talking about the love we should have and engender for humanity as a whole. Um, and that is part of strength as well. Yeah, nice point. Very, very nice. Steadfast, trustworthy, consistent, reliable, present, all of that. Yeah, yes, very, yes. very interesting. So, so uh, how, how is the role of being the provider? How is that sitting with you in your current state? Uh, in my current state, that's an interesting dynamic, actually, because my wife uh, has often expressed the need to do more to earn for her own sake, not to add to the family income, but just for her, because she comes from a, um, a family of subsistence rice farmers who, who needed her to work from the age of seven or eight hard, and... Uh, so hard work is part of her ethic, and she doesn't she doesn't enjoy just sitting around waiting for the money to flow uh, from my bank account. So in fact, she runs a family business uh, at a distance. She's got a uh, a family uh, business uh, in Thailand, and we're just about to move back so that she can start another one around uh, basically what is um, going to become. Uh, an exotic fruits market garden in in a region which doesn't have that kind of thing. So she's very entrepreneurial and and concerned to contribute uh, in ways that I that, that I admire. Uh, but but we're fortunate because there's not much pressure on us these days. There used to be, but not much pressure on us these days. Um, uh, you know, we know where the next dollar is coming from. Lovely. Uh, so, um, yeah, that's it's very nice, and and it, it's interesting that that uh, again to hear the cultural difference of of uh, of somebody 
brought up in that where the woman is really wanting to engage in work. So um, vulnerability. How does vulnerability sit with you, Richard? Oh, look, I'm extreme. <laughs> oh, this is unfair. Why? Uh, this is unfair. <laughs> Do I have to confess? <laughs> I'm not a Catholic, but I, you see, all my writing and virtually perhaps 50% of my public speaking uh, makes me very vulnerable. If, in telling the truth, you, you are being vulnerable, the truth as you see it. Um, especially if you can challenge your own beliefs and and not close your mind off to the opinion, the opinions and beliefs of others, I think you you are very vulnerable. And what you have to guard against in that vulnerability is becoming fragile, where you break. That's that's very very different. That you need resilience to deal with the vulnerability. So I think I'm vulnerable. But I also think I have the kind of resilience to deal with that vulnerability in a way which doesn't uh, depress me or cause me anxiety. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I think I'm fortunate there, Christine, as well. Again, I put that down to practice and, and including things like meditation, for example, uh, because I think a lot of men can't do that. Okay. Say more about that. Uh, I think they lapse into fragility I mean, again, you go back to the statistics of what, what men are doing, what they're feeling, and you look around at the statistics of men who are lost, who are dropping out, who are homeless, who are on drugs, who are committing suicide, and you, you have to say, well, there's something going on here. What is it? And I think that is the, the, the path from vulnerability to fragility and the, the, everything that leads from that. So would you say that that um, there is there is also uh, a, a fairly high cultural uh, in our society anyway a fairly high cultural uh, discomfort with expressing vulnerability that actually creates as its sort of byproduct fragility? Oh yes, I do. I mean, but that again comes from the education system. Uh, and it goes right into corporations where, you know, the higher up the ladder, the more you're supposed to know. You're, not, you're supposed to know the answers to everything. Our politicians. Why are we blaming politicians for the mess they're in? Because they, the whole system is so complex these days, of course they're out of their depth because they don't have the toolkit to deal with the complexities. And yet we still blame individuals within, and, and the relationships in, in the parliament. And it's crazy. It really is crazy because we're actually not dealing with the root causes of why the system is uh, breaking up. So, so let, I'm not going to go far down this rabbit hole, but root causes <laughs> of the... <laughs> what are a few of those root causes that you see that are leading to this very highly dysfunctional, not just in Australian politics, but global politics? Well, we've mentioned some of them. The, the need to find a scapegoat or somebody to blame to make it uh, simple. Uh, the focus on individuals when it's actually either a process or the system that we should be looking at. Uh, you know, there are many aspects of that. Okay. Um, okay, so um, what currently, in, when you look around at life, the world in general, what moves you the most? What moves me the most? Mm -hmm. What brings uh, you to your knees in oh, okay. some capacity. In other words, it, it, it evokes a deep emotion in you. Okay, so what I need to do uh, to find those moments, uh, th th there are two things. One is to go back to memory and uh, in evoking some memories that still move me. Um, and that can be a conversation with someone I regarded as a, a really great person. Uh, it can be something my mother said to me. It can be uh, a piece of music that, uh, or a poem, or a piece of art, or even a building, or even a sunset. Uh, so, so going back 
to things that are in the memory is one thing. And the second thing is keeping my keeping awake. Uh, so really observing. I mean, I think the, the one of the dangers with present technologies is that people are asleep. They are we are, as a as a species we seem to be sleepwalking into hazards that we're not alert to and you can see it even on the street or yeah. on the trains i mean people so glued to the technology they're they're totally unaware of what's happening around them so for me remaining awake so that i can see moments of love and contribution just you know it could be uh, someone helping another person in in a moment of danger or simply helping someone cross the road or it doesn't matter what it is just the, that moment of sheer joy where you see one human being empathizing and caring for another that i find that very moving lovely so did you did you have um with the loss of your father when you were seven did you did you have you ever had another father figure uh, no. Uh, what, oh, that's wrong, I suppose. Yes, it's wrong. I've had people take me under my wing professionally, but a result of the, the trauma that I went through, I mean, after he died, uh, I didn't speak for a month. I didn't utter a word for a month, uh, according to my mum. And when she eventually, she got so desperate and, and started shouting, why don't you talk to me? Um, apparently, my answer was because there's nobody to talk to. Huh. Huh. Sorry, hang on a minute. So, uh, I guess there have been people that I would say were father figures, but not to the total extent of the emotional, uh, psychological support that a good father gives his children. Mm. So professionally, yes, but, and I, there are people I've looked up to, obviously, but no, in the sense of that all-encompassing sense of love and safety and security no nobody wow um so thanks for sharing that uh which brings me to the sort of like the the close not specifically but um uh what's your what's your thoughts and um feelings towards death <laughs> Yes, As a, <laughs> it's, it's dangerous it's, subject. It's, it's a race against time, isn't it? I just had my seventy-third birthday, uh, and so there is so much that I still need to do. So I looked in the dictionary for the word retirement, and I can't find it anywhere. Um, <laughs> that's that's the Richard Haynes version, I guess. <laughs> yes, it was. Yes. Uh, that's, that's true. But uh, I think the longer the, the, I, I have, um, as you know, I have this practice where I have reports delivered into my computer every morning. I uh, have relationships with people all around the world. And we're constantly thinking about and talking about uh, humanity's evolution, more conscious evolution. And so in the work I'm doing, I'm trying to enable a more conscious evolution for the human family, as you know. Um, and that inspires me and it drives me. And in the same, in the same breath, I've become more accepting of death. I mean, I don't agree with it. I think it should be. <laughs> you don't agree with it. <laughs> I think it should be abolished, like like old age. Uh, you know, at, at my age, where parts of the body stop working and then they start dropping off, and you you think, how on earth can I I go on? Uh, but there's an acceptance there. There's there's if if you uh, a peace uh, uh, a peaceful acceptance of the inevitable, 
and just the need to to fill one's life as much as possible with real purpose uh, for family and friends particularly, but for everybody. I mean, I still, we've talked about those moments that you feel uh, vulnerable and some of those to me are in public speaking. I mean, I've I've been in front of an audience of two to three hundred people. I'm, I'm, I'm remembering a, some specific moments when I've looked out at them. And I don't know what I was talking about, but I've looked out at them and I've I've had to stop uh, saying anything simply because I've had that lump in my throat, which is just a profound sense of love for everything and everyone. Um, and, th- and that helps uh, this, what I'm calling acceptance, this coming to terms with the fact that we're all human and that it ends. Um, but that before that, uh, I want to fill my life with as much meaning as, as possible. So do you, do you think you have more purpose now than maybe um, in your mid-40s or early 50s? Oh, yes, absolutely. I, th- I think it's only recently, I, mean, I talk about being a slow learner. <laughs> I, I think it's only recently, to be honest, that I've been absolutely secure and convinced about what I was here to do. Oh, wow. Nice. It's so, it, well, it's it, good to hear that, and it's probably not very good if there's a thirty-year-old listening to this. <laughs> <laughs> really? <laughs> I gotta wait. It that takes long. time. It takes it takes time for things to happen. Yes. You know, I mean, a lot of things are speeding up, but it still takes nine or ten months for a baby to be born. Yeah. Still yeah. takes four or five minutes to boil an egg. Yeah. Depending yeah. on how you like it. And, and some things take longer these days, and I think the acquiring of wisdom takes longer. So can you speak a little bit about what, what, that, that what has emerged for you around that that you feel so purposeful about? Uh, it's, yes, it's finding, finding a, a mission that just makes sense. Because when you, when you look back on your life, there's a clear sense of continuity. You can understand why you made decisions and what everything is leading to. And that's true of every stage of life, I think. It makes sense looking backwards, was at the time you're making a decision, perhaps to move to a different country or to to drop your career um, and do something entirely different or to have children or, or not have children, whatever that decision is. At the time, it seems so momentous and, you know, that changes everything. It doesn't. It's actually, it actually is part of that continuity that will make sense eventually to you. So for me, the calmness and the, if you like, the wisdom, or, or I can't think of a better word, uh, has been the acknowledgement of where my pathway has led me to now and the inevitability of where it now leads Mm-hmm. Very nice. It, 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 I, uh, I was. Uh, I, someone reminded me to look at Jane Fonda's speech that she gave at a TED Women's event in um, TEDx Women's event in uh, 2011 about the third act, and uh, and and she really it, the power of the speech was that she was saying that this is the time to come into the fullness of your power to not be diminished, which is what often happens. Uh, with us in in our current culture as we as we uh, age is there is a as is a cultural diminishment a cultural exclusion a cultural um what's the other word um disappearance there's a desire for disappearance of the elder Mm. and uh and yet um, you, my mother, who turned 81 this year and published her 10th book on her 81st birthday, she's sure that she's got another 10 to go um, mm. at least, and threatens her dentist that she needs teeth for another 30 years. Mm. Um, <laughs> uh, so I, I, think, I think there's a revolution coming. We need a revolution of the... Of the, uh, of the 
the elders who will not be silenced and who will not be put in in uh, put hostage in some horrible home somewhere where no one can see them and uh, can stand and oh, say we have things to do and work to be done. That, that, that's a two-edged sword because more and more I realise that one of the problems we have in society is that my generation that's caused many of the problems we have today. If you just take climate change, for example, we've really weren't the uh, original cause, but we've exacerbated the problem and continue to do so. And we're not getting out of the way. So in but that sense, we need the younger generation to step up and we need them to, to encourage them. Yes. But uh, I must admit that I've also practiced invisibility. So when I live in Thailand, which is frequently, we're just going back to Thailand to live, I become invisible because I don't speak the language and I'm anonymous as well. I become invisible. And if I'm not careful, I could just disappear entirely, I think. So there's a, there's a sense in that invisibility of purpose as well, because it gives you more time for reflection and consideration and deep deep thinking without the daily distractions of life that I think are important. And if if the elderly are to contribute in a way which is genuinely authentic and unique for that generation, then that entire generation needs to acquire a different level of wisdom mm. that, that can lead that is genuine leadership to a different level of human development and evolution. I, I could not agree more and thank you for raising that point because quite often I am, I've been known to say that some of these people, some people who control our media, for example, can you please disappear? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and um, the point that Jane Fonda actually made on this uh, 2011 TED talk was that um, it should be a staircase going up and that uh, wisdom and eldership uh, should be an, a daily evolution up the staircase, not a static it's, it's, stuckness. It's a, if, if it's a staircase, it's a circular staircase. Okay. <laughs> It's, it's the it's the Spiral. it's the relationship between acquiring wisdom and relating that to the external changes in the external environment. Right. Yes. Yeah. That that DNA uh, cognitive DNA spiral. But just just one thing that I'm sure I've told you the story before about why I'm doing what I'm doing now. Probably, but let's hear it again. Well, it was because I was challenged. I was doing uh, one of my public speeches on on leadership actually or or the lack of it and this guy came up to me afterwards and he said this is all very well i mean you're a deep thinker and you write stuff and you 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 speak very nicely but why don't you stop all that and actually do something <laughs> i was most offended and i thought go away disappear just go away but actually when i went back home that very night i back to thailand i mean Yes. That very night, I had a dream, and I don't usually remember my dreams, but this was so vivid, and I remember, even now, I remember every single detail, and uh, I'm Buddhist, and I was observing the burning of my body at my funeral, and uh, surrounding the pyre was all my friends from, from way back, and family and my the front of my part, uh, front row my children and my grandchildren and they were talking amongst each other about me and i heard them say if dad knew so much about what was needed in the world why why didn't he more do more to um. you know, to, to ensure that the world is a better one for us Beautiful dream, and uh, and we're very privileged to have you enacting that dream in uh, in real time. Uh, and just to just to close that loop as well, you spoke you know beautifully about the requirement to actually both do and to um, in your in your time in Thailand to 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 be in the question as well. It's it's mm. it's a both end. It, yes. Yeah. Yeah, really lovely, um, and that's a beautiful way to end this conversation, unless there's anything else that you want to add. 
in closing? Uh, uh, no, just a lovely talk. Thank you. And, and thank you for being my friend. <laughs> um, making me blush now, Richard. <laughs> um, thank you. Um, is, uh, to, to get in contact with you, is there any best way that you prefer people to, to find you? Oh, the best, well, it, yes, the, the best is through the website, I think, uh, which is www. as, as always, richardhames.com. Lovely. Uh, we'll have um, your bio and everything else like that, and everything in the show notes. Thank you so much for making the time to speak. Um, really treasured this conversation. That's a real pleasure. Thank you for, very, for having the conversation. To listen to more of these conversations and access the show notes, visit 223am.com. That's the number two, the number two, the number three am.com and experience a whole new kind of success and fulfillment. If you've got what it takes, experience a session directly with Dr. Christine McDougall. Visit 223am.com and apply now. Thanks for listening.